Hi, I'm Beverly D'Angelo, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is an Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning, and Grammy-winning musician, songwriter, arranger, and conductor, and the composer of some of the most recognizable and admired film and TV scores and TV theme songs of the last six decades. He's created scores and individual songs for over 100 films, including Barbarella, Goodbye Columbus, Victory and Entebbe, Foul Play, Nine to Five, Oh God Book Two, and National Lampoon's European Vacation, just to name a few and composed music and theme songs for popular TV shows such as ABC's Wide World of Sports, Love American Style, Monday Night Football, What's My Line, Match Game, The Bugaloos, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Wonder Woman, The Paper Chase, The Love Boat, co-written with our one-time podcast guest, Paul Williams, with another occasional writing partner, the late Norman Gimbel. He penned the hit song, I Got a Name, Killing Me Softly with his song, a number one hit in 1974, and a personal favorite of yours truly, Ready to Take a Chance Again. His songs have been performed by a who's who of popular music, including Roberta Flack, Jim Croce, Johnny Cash, Lena Horne, Johnny Mathis, Barry Manilow, Olivia Newton-John and the Boston Pops, and even Fred Astaire. He's also composed the music for stage plays, live concerts, and ballets and conducted symphony orchestras all over the world. And in 2010, he authored a terrific memoir called Killing Me Softly, My Life in Music. Please welcome one of our favorite composers, a member of the National Songwriters Hall of Fame, and a man who promised that he would do this podcast on the condition that I didn't sing any of his songs. (laughs) The multi-talented Charles Fox. Wait, I think I said that in jest. (laughs) Where did you get that quote from? We we assumed you had heard him sing. (laughs) 
Uh, hey, so guys, thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I, I think I need to take a vacation. I did so much yeah, work. You did a lot, <laughs> Charles. Now It's now, dizzying. Before our listeners, some of our crazy listeners, are going to get angry that we left out your most important credit. Which was that? The green slime. Uh, <laughs> had I known this you would have that up, I would have said, could you sing one of my songs instead? <laughs> <laughs> Truth be told, I told him the section from the book where you said the green slime followed you around for decades. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I, I didn't write any music for that at all. It was my first, well, the first opportunity to make some extra money, if you want to know the truth, <laughs> going back years ago. And, I, and um, I took the job, and it turned out that all I had to do was help them to find existing music and cut into the picture. And I took the job, and I, uh, oh, why are we talking about the green slime? <laughs> It was a throwaway joke. Really? Yeah. Let's call this prologue. <laughs> <laughs> a Japanese sci-fi movie. Anyway, it was a Japanese sci-fi. And, and uh, first I called the producer back, the director, and, and I said, you know what? Um, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. I just I, I can't spend the next few weeks cutting someone else's music, canned music. I said, I, it just goes against me. And I needed the money, to be honest with you. Uh, going back 100 years of my career, before I did my first picture. Mm-hmm. And they convinced me, said, you know, I'm counting on you. And I depend. Anyway, so I, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do it under one condition, which took me about a week or two. Um, and, you know, when you use that kind of canned music, it was like, uh, all right, you go into a, you audition some of the music that might be right for a scene. And you say, oh, that sounds pretty good. Let me have a, about a pound and a half of that music, you know, and a quarter of a pound of this kind of music. And you put it into the picture. I said, I'll do it under one condition that you don't put my name by the screen. That was my only condition. <laughs> and he did not live up to that condition. So it came up with the original Japanese composer who was hired. Uh-huh. And whatever I did, I, you know, I took demos and I threw it into the film, whatever. Uh, and for years after that, I could be someplace in the film business, music business, and someone would say, hey, I saw your picture last night. Great slime. <laughs> And they said, really, why'd you do that picture? I said, really, why'd you watch that picture? <laughs> That's the perfect answer. Had you heard of the green slime before this, Gilbert? Because you yeah. know every bad horror movie yes, yes. known to men. Yes. Yeah. yeah, He knows I, them all. Well, don't remind me, okay? Now, now, years ago, before I even knew you did the music, years ago, I saw the movie Zapped. Oh. And with um, Scott Baio, right. Willie Ames. Scatman. Uh, yeah, Scatman <laughs> Crothers right. and, and Heather Thomas. Right. Which I thought was going to be, and we'll be discussing this with our next <laughs> we'll be guest. We'll talking about too. it later, too. Because right. yeah. this was a TNA uh, teen sex comedy. About telekinesis, right? Yes, yeah. yes. It was like kind of a takeoff on Carrie, but, and it was a terrible movie. But I, I'm, I swear to you, I like the music. Stayed with him all these years. Really? Well, you, you know, it's a funny thing because you start off with two of my least favorite projects. <laughs> where, where do we go from here? <laughs> but go we're, good, we're good at that. Practicing scales of hand but, and piano. <laughs> no matter what I promise yeah. you, <laughs> we are going to sing some songs from Zach. You're just getting, you're just getting even with me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I'll, I'll tell you about Zap. So I, I wrote yes. a bunch of songs, and um, two of them uh, became 
classics in the Philippines. Wow. Only, only in the Philippines. <laughs> You're big in Manila. Uh, Tell so, me which uh, one. Uh, I'll sing it right ready, now. <laughs> uh, gotta believe in magic. Okay. Okay. I'll. <clears throat> All right. I'm ready. <laughs> Be careful, ready. Charles. Be careful. You want to sing it? Yeah. Take me to your heart. Show me where to start. Let me play the part of your first love. <laughs> All the stars are bright. Let us make a wish tonight, my love. Pity those who wait. <laughs> Trust in love to fate. Finding out too late that they've lost it. Never let it go. You will never know the ways of love. Got to believe in magic. <laughs> Show me how two people find each other. In a world that's full of strangers. Got to believe in magic. It's stronger than the moon that shines above. Cause it's magic when two people fall in love. You know what? I'm so amazed. This is, um, first of all, I haven't, I haven't played that in 40 or 50 years. And you are still singing that song. Yes, yes. I'm afraid I, to tell you the other song that's in okay, the Philippines. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Because <laughs> I, I, I can't you, remember. Wait, don't yeah. say another word. Yeah. Is it King and Queen of yes. yes. Okay. Okay. Want me to start? <laughs> Come on. I'm ready. I'm ready. I love this. I don't remember it myself. Okay. I remember it. Fake it. I fake okay. what? <laughs> okay. Sing a little. Okay. Yeah, you do it. We're the King and Queen of Hearts. Show, hold me when the music starts. <laughs> All my dreams come true. When I dance with you. That's, uh, that's great. That's right. Oh, wait. <laughs> I promise me you're mine tonight. I will wait in line tonight. I with the lights down low Never let you go Did you dream <laughs> that we danced together oh, In a night that we'd stay forever In a dream that we thought would never end It's not my imagination or a part of the orchestration. <laughs> this began with the coronation where the king and the queen of hearts. I am really amazed. Uh, oh, this is this is the greatest moment. So for me, it is. As I will tell you this. Yeah, uh, it's only it's only famous in the Philippines. 
Honestly. Until now. Well, until now. Until we until post it on Facebook. You know, this may be the start of big things for me here, you know? <laughs> I'm, I may have a career after this. In, in the Philippines, I'm Only considered the next Charlie Chaplin. I want to tell you something. You can go to the Philippines just singing that song. They'll love you there. Yeah. I think Dara would like you to go to the Philippines. And we're not going to do it now, but when the show ends, yeah. we have to do the ending of Zap, which is... Uh, oh, I won't remember that at all. Ready to get what you got. Oh, I can't go there. Yeah. I, I can't go well, there. Well, fake it. That one I love. We'll find it, some other ones for you. It was performed by Plain Jane was the name of this imaginary we, group. No, we had two or three different groups, but David Pomerantz sang those two songs, and here's what happened. The movie was, wasn't a great movie, no. and it was over and done with, right? Years later, about four or five, six, seven years later, I went to see David Pomerantz perform the show with uh, David Zippel, the great songwriter. Sure. Who, you know, a friend of mine who we've collaborated. Good writer. Wonderful writer. And um, after the show, David Pomerantz comes up to me and says, you do know that those two songs you wrote for me are big hits in the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> I said, how would I know that? Uh, I never saw royalties, and no one ever mentioned it. So he sent me a video of him singing, and as soon as they hit, played a little bit of an introduction to Gotta Believe in Magic, about 5,000 girls start screaming because they know the song. Since that time, because he's become very famous in the Philippines, they've been trying to get me there too for a Amazing. while. Amazing. You know, but um, every place that I've gone... Where the, we were on a cruise last year, we were on a love boat cruise. They got me to play the piano and sing some of my songs. All the waiters were Filipino, and if I ever mention, I give people the, the Filipino test. If they, <laughs> if I, yeah, I know if they're really Filipino, if they know that song, that's hilarious. Yeah, and then they start singing anyway. So it was. Uh, what else about my past? Do you know, this is an interesting <laughs> thing from the book that I was sharing with Gilbert. Tell, tell us. It was almost destined that you would be a musician because of something called the music bump. <laughs> well, yeah. did you explain um, this to our listeners? I don't think I explained that to anyone. Could you? <laughs> but I'll tell you the fabled story in my family. Yeah, supposedly, it's interesting. When I was born, I was the middle of three boys. The doctor supposedly looked at the young-born child that I was and said, "There's a bump. That's the music bump in the back of his head." Amazing. Well, I was, and yeah. it meant what? That you? It meant the doctor was drunk. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but there it is. You know, I followed, I followed what he said and started playing the piano at age nine. I did. Yeah, yeah. I did. And Frank and I were both interested. Is that you uh, used to play in the Catskills? Oh yeah, you, know, you put your first band together. You know, um, that's where we all got started. All the uh, I have so many friends who got started in the Catskills. That's where all the great comics started. You know. Can you tell us some of the comics you worked with? Um, you know, I play the piano. And the uh, first place I played, I was 15 years old, had my first band. And uh, we were pretty thrilled to get a job, you know. And uh, there were other hotels. There were big hotels. There were 450 hotels in the Casco Mountains. It was a pretty amazing place. that? And some of the, the biggest comedians in the world. But big bands, you know, they were very... Beautiful places. They were large. I played a little place. And we didn't have new entertainment that came in. We had two people who came from Yiddish theater. Harry Steinman being one of them. You know too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Velma Ravel was the other Velma, one. They, uh, Velma Ravel. Did they go back to vaudeville? They do. And, and they used to put on skits. 
Amazing. And uh, Harry Storm used to actually put lipstick on, like like the old vaudeville thing, with pancake makeup. And they would act out plays and stuff. And I would sit there. <laughs> you know, just make up things to go along. Or, um, um. And a happy Jewish moment, you know. <laughs> you guys are 15. You probably didn't 15. know what hit you. <laughs> well, maybe it's <laughs> the start of my motion picture career. You know? Anyway, um, that's where it started for me. Um, uh, I'll tell you who I did work with was Shelly Shelley Berman. Yes. yes. Shelly yeah. did a show for me. Uh, we went to, we did in Florida for six weeks, and he was a friend. And what a was, funny guy. Yeah, he was a nice man. And, uh, we, we wanted to have him on this show. But he had taken a turn for the worse by late, the time we started. Late, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He would well, have been great, too. But, you know, it's very romantic in the book because you're talking about not only the, the cat skills, you romanticize it. You know, you were 15 and it, the world was your oyster. But of also course. also the coming of age in New York at that time, and you're describing hanging out at the Blue Note and going to these jazz clubs and there's a doo-wop group on every corner. I was, you know, explaining it to Gilbert. It must have been great times. It was great times, yeah. And it was an innocent time. So, you know, the truth is those days I, I really wasn't into pop music, rock yeah. and roll. Uh, I discovered Latin music, you know, and I loved jazz and I loved uh, classical music. Um, but I wasn't into rock and roll of the 50s. I didn't get to appreciate it, honestly, until I got to do Happy Days. And they asked me to, you know, I did a lot of the shows for Gary Marshall. And that sure. was one of them. And that sure. was actually an outgrowth of Love America Style. Um, when I sat down to write Happy Days, I realized I was not into the 50s. I have to get some background. So I went out and bought 50s records. And, you know, the 50s was a pretty simple time. It was or, um, Elvis Presley. It was mm-hmm. either the blues of 1625 chord mm-hmm. progression. And so the, the early happy days was 1625 chord Meant to sound like a 50s song that uh, would somehow come back and be a hit, which it turned out. Became to be. Big hit. The thing about Happy Days, too, is, as you, you mentioned, they started with Rock Around the Clock. Yes. So it was when, at what point did uh, Miller and uh, Milkus, those yeah. guys, came to you and, say, and said, we, we, need a, we need an original song for this? Well, first of all, it, it was um, in Love America Style, they used to have three episodes a week. Oh, yeah. People forget that it came from Love and the Happy Days. Love and the Happy Days. Yeah. It was always Love, Love American Style. And um, so that was one of the, the episodes. And ABC decided that they would... Um, Make a pilot. They thought it'd be a good a good idea, and they decided to shelve it eventually because uh, they thought that uh, the world wasn't ready to revisit the fifties. Yeah, we had Henry here, told us that. Yeah, yeah. So then finally, when uh, American Graffiti came out and that was a big hit, uh, ABC decided to give it a shot and put it on the air. So American Graffiti's theme was rock around the clock. We wrote Norma Gimbel and I wrote Happy Days song right away for the pilot. But they were, they thought, well, let's hold it for the end title. For the main title, just wanted to create that 50s sound that everyone knows. They was rock around the clock. So the show was on for a year, and it was doing pretty well. Not great, but great enough, they gave it a second, second year. And they realized that somehow after a few episodes that Henry Winkler was fast emerging sure. as the, the star of the show, even though Ronnie was great, Ron Howard. Um, and also, Henry was getting a lot of letters, you know, people really, he, he was fast becoming the star, a, a star, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing they said is, let's, let's try it. We went from a film show to a four-camera live right. show with an right. audience. And Gary Marshall was, you know, like one of the funniest men ever. 
and uh, he would warm up the audience, and, and they, they loved the, the, the people. And so they decided, well, if we're going to give it a new look and a new sound, we're going to go after the fans of the store. And uh, for cameras, let's use our Happy Days theme song at the beginning. And then it all broke open. You know, we had a top, I don't know, it was, it was number one record in Europe, I know that, but it was top five, I think, around the country. One of, still one of the most beloved theme songs. And, you, and Gilbert and I got a kick out of the fact that you wrote a Ralph and Potsy, you, you wrote music for a Ralph and Potsy pilot and a we Pinky did, Tuscadero one. We did. We did, yeah. we did spin-offs. They tried yeah. to spin it off. Well, Laverne and Shirley was a spin-off. Right. Yeah. Right. And finally, and, Mork and Mindy. And you wrote the theme music to uh, Love American Style. Mm-hmm. And also that interstitial music that would play. You know what I did there? That We had little vignettes. Yeah. So on those little vignettes, I treated them like a, a, a like a different classical composer would do that. One time it was Beethoven, one time Chopin, Brahms, and I would just treat them as separate and different musically than the theme itself. Yeah, that those were some of the greatest scores. They were fun. Actually, you want to know the truth? I'm the, the 17th, if Arnold Margolin is hearing this, he was a creator. Arnold yeah, I met Arnold. Arnold at a party a couple Did years you? ago. Well, He's I'm going to see him guy. at a party in a couple of weeks. Oh, good. Please They're having my a best. Love America Saw reunion in, in at the Paramount Commissary, which he called me to make sure I'm going to get there. Wow. And um, so those of us who are around. You and know, Stuart's to coming too? I don't know if Stuart's yeah. coming. Yeah. No, I don't okay. know. Stuart. He's in the Midwest. We had him on yes, the show too. Yes. We had Stuart. We had Stuart's Stuart. great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what, I mean, that's, that's probably the first time I saw the name Charles Fox on my, on my television. Was love was love it American was style the first time? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know you had done some some composing of well, Wide World of Sports came before that. That came before that. Well, yeah. I, I did um, Monday Night Football. It came before that too. Yeah. Right, the original Monday Night Football one. The original Monday Night Football. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and one movie I recommended on this show was uh, a strange film in black and white. Oh, here we go. Another one of these. <laughs> oh no. This- <laughs> This is uh, this is uh, your friend Larry Pierce. Oh well, my friend Larry Pierce is. I'm going to see him for dinner. And oh, he's still yes. around. Yeah. He's good. Boy, oh. I like his stuff. Yeah. Oh my God, Larry's yeah. one of my closest friends. Oh my God. Yeah. At this, Love this to talk starred to him. Martin Sheen, Tony Marcente, everybody, Marcente, yeah, Tony uh, yeah, yeah uh, Jack Guilford. Oh, uh, I, what's his name? Bo, oh, Bo what? Bridges. Bo Bridges, yeah. yes. And what's his name? Mike Kellen. Yeah, absolutely. Ed right. McMahon, Brock Peters. You have a fantastic memory for things. My God. Yeah. Well, I tell you, this has come up on the show before. Oh, really? We had a, to- a, whole, yes. ep- a whole episode about the incident, a shorter no episode. Kidding. Yeah, I really like that Well, movie. you should speak to Larry Pierce. He's, we should speak to Larry Pierce. He just came in town, I think, today. We're going to see him. We like Goodbye Columbus, too? Well, Larry uh, really is one of my closest friends to this day. My very first picture in 1967 was with Larry Pierce. And um, that was the incident. And it was a black and white picture. And it was a very, very fine picture. And it was a picture of, uh, in black and white of two tough guys, Tony Buzente and Marty uh, Sheen, uh, terrorizing a subway car. And it was such a, such a frightening episode. In the 60s, there was a lot of stuff going on in subways. Yeah, know? sure. And um, I wrote the score. And... Um, it was uh, it w- it was a hit, but it was also people were very bothered by it. It, w- it wasn't just a sit back, relaxed picture. You know, it was very intense. My next picture um, was Barbarella. That was Dino Dino Laurentiis. Sure, was R- Raja Vadim. Yeah, sure. Two characters, and, Dino Di Laurentiis yeah. and Raja <laughs> Vadim. Well, and actually, that was a really nice situation for me because that was uh, Bob Crew. Yeah, you know, great genius of, of the course, Four Seasons. And, 
So we wrote a bunch of songs for that, and I did the score, and that was a lot of fun. That was, that, that was a hit. That was a big hit around the world. Um, and th- the next picture that I was up for was good by Columbus. And so when Barbarella came out, the people from Parma came out to see who this young fellow was in New York doing a big film. No one knew me because Bob had got me to do that. So that led to Goodbye Columbus, which was Larry. So I've done a lot of pictures of Larry. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, uh, in Barbarella, uh, so many memorable things. When we were finished with a film, uh, I had to go to France to teach Jane Fonda how to sing the theme of the song. And that was, you know, as a young composer, and, and, and she and Vadim, Russia Vadim, lived in a farmhouse. Mm-hmm. I spent a couple of days out there with him in the farm in France, and uh, teaching her how to sing the song. And, and uh, he had a red Ferrari. And, uh, <laughs> he lived a good life. Yeah, he lived Roger a good Vadim. life. Yeah, and, and that was the inspiration for me many years later to get a red Ferrari for really? the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I always remember that. Were you going to cut a record with her, Jane Fonda? There was some talk of that. Well, to we do a, were to do a... we were supposed to do an album. Yeah, uh, Bob Crew and I were supposed to go to Saint Tropez, spend the summer, and do an album for Jane Fonda. Amazing. And she decided that she didn't want to sing. You know. Yeah, Barbarella is another movie that's come up on the show. What did did you have any direct interaction with De Laurentiis, who's a larger than life figure? Very very little, to yeah. be honest with you. Very little. Yeah. yeah. I, but I worked with with Vadim. Yeah. The director, which, you know, in movies, I work mostly with the directors. Yeah. Television is an odd thing, but mostly with the producers. The interesting thing about the incident, too, and I read in your book that, that the, the way people reacted in movie theaters, that people were actually having negative, in some ways, very emotional negative reactions to the movie. People were tearing up movie theaters. Uh, the incident. Yeah, the incident. Yeah, yeah going back to this. Yes, yeah. because it was, there, there was such intensity. Uh, I, I wouldn't even want to repeat it on the air in this show. But uh, there was such intensity. Um, these two guys terrorizing couples and individuals. And it finally got to the point where, where um, Bo Bridges, um, and that was, I spoke to Bo recently about that. He, it was not his first film, but it was Tony Musante's first, not Tony, it was Tony Musante's film, also um, Martin Sheen. Marty Sheen. It was yeah. his first film. Yeah. Everybody's good in it. Everyone is great. Well, yeah. Larry, Larry's Very a powerful, Larry's Very a powerful movie. I'll tell you, they shot that on a subway set they built in the Bronx. Uh, at the, um, I forget the name of the theater, but it's where Charlie Chaplin used to, and I, and I was on the set, and it was just a subway. Look, the Biograph the, Theater? Biograph Theater, yeah. that was it. And the thing was shaking, and the lights were passing by, so you thought you were moving, and the whole thing was shot right yeah. there. It's a, it's a, it's a, a wonderful movie, but it's an unsettling movie, and it still holds up all, all these years later. It was just last year. That's why we got to talk with Marty Sheen and, you know, everyone else was there, and, and it was honoring Larry, the screening, and it was part of the, uh, the Turner Film Classics yeah. episode. At, uh, Gilbert brought it up on a, on a show. We've done so many of these. Yeah, and we, we, we used to just talk about favorite movies, and he brought that up one day, and we did a whole show about it. That Yeah, that was one of those movies I just caught on TV years ago, Yeah, and it was like, you know, it hooks you in. The Blu-ray just yeah. came out. The Blu-ray just was released. They sent me a copy, yeah. Well, well, if Larry wants to talk to us, you know, we'd certainly love to. Unfortunately, I don't know the theme song. <laughs> You're in in luck. I didn't didn't write that. No, I didn't write write it. No, I didn't. But another nice story in the book, too, is when you first got out to L.A., I think it was your first day in Hollywood, you met Henry Mancini. You know, um, Hollywood was a dream. Um, Kenny Starr, who who could have imagined to get out and do big movies in Hollywood? I remember seeing, um, fantasizing, uh, seeing at a Life magazine with, with Henry Mancini's story, you know. 
and that he he started off and uh, he was in the army. He played the piccolo. He played the piano, and and he was in a ranger. And they got to do movies, and of course he was you of know, course the king of Hollywood, you know, and the nicest man in the world, by the way. So my very first day in Hollywood, the um, I came out to do Good by Columbus, and Paramount sent a limousine for me and my family, and it was all totally impressive. You know, here we are again, a limousine going to an apartment. They got the next day. I showed up at the studio. And um, the guard said, all right, you go through the studio, you'll find left turn, right turn. In front of the music building, you'll find your parking space. And I pull up to my parking space, and to the left of me is Neil Hefty. Oh, we love, oh, we love Neil yes. Hefty. And to the right of me is Henry Mancini. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. How about that? Between those two How guys. About yeah, that? Neil Hefty was odd couple and had to murder your wife. Yeah, Lots he, of and he, was, he was a friend, too. Neil oh, was a great guy. man. He was TV great, show. yeah. Wonderful composer, ranger. And, we love these guys. And one thing you have in common with Henry Mancini is like, you've gotten your past the green slime, and Henry Mancini, <laughs> I think, made his uh, like living early on with these crappy sci-fi films. I don't know that, but, you know, everyone gets started. Someone's got to get started yeah, some course, course, you know? Of course. And so, and he was like this brilliant... Totally brilliant, but as nice as he can be. So I'm, uh, he came into the commissary. I was there with the music editor and um, the head of the music department kind of entertaining me, a new composer in town. My very first day in California. And Henry comes in. He says, uh, they wave him over. Come on over here, Hank. I want you to meet someone. So we had lunch together. And he turns to me after a few minutes and he, and he says, uh, are you in the Motion Picture Academy? I said, no, I I'd love to be. I don't, I don't know how it happens. He said, well, you need to have three pictures. How many pictures have you done? I said, well, this is my third. I'm working on it. He said, good. He said, someone has to, you have to have two people sign for you. to bring. You can't apply. You have to be invited. He said, so I'll invite you. He said, uh, I'm happy to do this. He said, we need new blood in the academy. That's great. Wow. He said, he said do you know anyone else? I said, honestly, I don't know anyone. He said, I'll ask Elmer Bernstein. Wow. Oh, my God. So my God. first day in Hollywood, I get invited to join the Motion Picture Academy. How about that? Neil Hefty, Elmer Bernstein, and Henry Mancini all at once. And we should give us some context. I mean, you're a kid from New York who okay. used to go to the pier and look out at the at the ships and hope that one day you would be able to see the world. And dream about yeah. doing what I was doing. You bet. And you're living it at this living point. Living the dream. Yeah. yeah. But honestly, I still am. Good for you, Charles. Good perspective. And um, I have had great parents, you know. They supported this all along. They supported my dream. Yeah. They didn't yeah. think it was in any way crazy, like, what are you going? I never heard that. No. no I never heard oh, that. Oh, nice. And you, how, we, you know, how easy, I mean, look, how, how many people grow up in the Bronx, a middle-class middle family, and uh, and then want to get, get go to Paris to study music, you know, not not a lot of people. But my parents supported that, you know, and, uh, and my dreams. How long were you in Paris with, with the great Nadia? Two years? About two years. Yeah. Two years. Yeah, and in the book, and people can tell our listeners to, to, to pick up the book, which again is called Killing Me Softly, My Life in Music. Thank you, yeah. The stories of you and, and, and your, your teacher, your, your mentor, Nadia, fair to call her that? I call her Mademoiselle Boulanger. <laughs> <laughs> you can call her Nadia because you don't know her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the thing. A woman, she was 72 years old when yeah. I was 18. Yeah. And I came home when I was 21. Um, a woman of uh, French woman of that age should be called madame yes her mother was madame so she was mademoiselle i noticed that in the book that you and um to. so we we call we all called her mademoiselle you know 
And who else did she teach besides you? We were talking outside. Well, 40 years before me, Aaron Copeland was the first. Yeah. But people came from around the world and uh, the, some of the you know great composers around the world. Ailey Carter and... Uh, yeah. Michelle Legrand. Michelle Legrand, yes. Philip Glass. Philip Glass. I once was talking to Michelle Legrand about, about that. And he said, well, I was there for, with her for six years or something. Well, he was also... French, you know, he was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he, had a, he had a leg up on you. He, also, he was there anyway. I also but was, however, wait a second. Michelle Legrand's one of the great. Oh, of course, we just lost him. The great, yes, yeah. we, we did. Yeah. yeah, one of the greatest musicians, uh, composers ever. Yeah. And Quincy Jones. And Quincy's a friend. Yeah. yeah, Quincy. And you know, when I get together, Quincy, we, we talk about you do. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, we speak a little French also sometimes. I, I was I telling Gilbert, you you know, the, part of the the uh, the fun of reading the book is you're talking about how hey, I'm a kid who kept kosher, and suddenly I'm in Paris, <laughs> and there's food everywhere, <laughs> and you yes. didn't, you know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> suddenly, a new I, world. The first day, um, I, we hooked up. We were, I think we were on a chartered flight with a bunch of us going to the for the summer. It was a summer school Fontainebleau is in the Palace of Fontainebleau. That was Napoleon's summer palace. Wow. Uh, and built by, by Francois the first. But anyway, we I hooked up with some other people going to Paris, a part of the school, and we had a week to spend in Paris before the school started at Fontainebleau. So we all kind of stayed together because no one knew anyone or anything. We walked together. We took a train together. And we went. We, we had meals together. And um, I didn't know anything about food that was didn't come from my own house, frankly. Right. You know, or corned beef sandwiches, I knew. <laughs> um, and every night I would have steak because I could understand the word steak. Right? <laughs> All the other things, rabbit, mouton, lamb, I mean, um, cornichon. Anyway, um, so after a while, after about a third day, I, I, there was steak tartare. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. That's probably steak with the sauce. <laughs> with yeah. tartar sauce. sauce. So I asked for the steak tartare. Well done. Right. Which they will laugh because <laughs> steak tartare is raw yeah, steak. Right, exactly. The, we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor. And we were talking because we're both fans of Get Smart that you wrote a song for one of our guests, Barbara Felden. Was Agent- she here? We what? had Barbara oh, Felden. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. She lives a few blocks from here. I, I didn't write the songs. Yo, I yo, even I arranged, arranged that I arranged yeah. the songs, yes. Right. And... Um, that was for David Susskind. 99. Agent 99. Yeah, we yeah. had a song called Agent 99. Yeah. I found and it Dan, online. And, it's on YouTube. Is that so? Yes. And Dan Melnick. Now, that was his partner. And Dan Melnick, during that recording session, put his arm on my shoulder and said, Hey, kid, it sounds like you could do pictures. I was in a range and I said, I sure would love to. And then I ended up getting a picture, my one of my first pictures for David Susskind. So that was a turning yeah, point. It, doing it this, this, the, Yeah. Because yeah. you know what, there've been a lot of turning points. I mean, I'll be honest with you. People, people have asked me that question. There's sure. A lot. Um, I got sort of, I guess, I got a lot of starts. You know, and one of my starts was working for Skish Henderson at Tonight Show. Yeah, tell us about yeah. that because there's also a famous Tonight Show episode that falls into that story. Oh, I was there. Yeah. Was yeah. There. <laughs> yes. There, there's one of the when you see like some of the greatest funny moments, funny moments for Johnny Carson or television. It's an iconic moment. It's with iconic moment. Ed Ames throwing the tomahawk, and I was with Ed Ames. Ed Ames that day. Incredible. And he sang "Try to Remember" and one of the song. And I did the arrangements. And so in the after, you know, the sh- tape, show tapes in the afternoon, and we did the show. I did rehearse the band. And then he played an Indian on Daniel Boone. 
he was no more an Indian than you or me. Uh, <laughs> um, but that was he, he played the role. So Forgot his character. So name. they 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 wheel out this big backboard of a wooden thing with a kind of a carving or a cut out of a, of yeah. a an outline of a, of a sheriff of a of a cowboy, and they handed it the tomahawk. He never threw a tomahawk. <laughs> He said, here, throw it. He said, I don't know how to throw it. So he just naturally pointed the point of it towards the, the, the screen, this backdrop, and threw it. And 10 times in a row, it kept bouncing off. And one of the stagehands came to him and said, here, turn it the other way so that the point is facing you. He threw it once. It stuck in. And they marked the spot. And so he sang his one or two songs. And then they handed the tomahawk. He threw it, and he had no idea that it was going to hand. He was going to circumcise this, this right. cowboy. <laughs> right. you know? um, and he got. You can't see because it's black and white TV. Yeah. He got all red in the face. Oh, he was so bad. <laughs> and all he wanted to do was get out and remove this thing. And Johnny, who's you know comic genius, sure. He kept. You watch it. He keeps pulling it back. Yeah. He tries to make his way over there. Sharpening the two things. And he's sharpening. He's waiting for his line. He milked that joke as much yep. as he can milk it. Yeah. What and, you- and he's he uh, Carson said to him, uh, "It's it's okay. You can't hurt him any worse." <laughs> right. he said, first he said, that. "I didn't know you were Jewish." Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What did you do with Skitch and uh, on the Carson show? Um, I used to do, first of all, themes, original themes as the yeah. uh, show went on the air and off the air. Band, not, not the Tonight Show theme, right, but of the, course. Uh, you know, they play music. I used to write some of those themes, the show went on the air, off the air, uh, for the big band with, uh, with Doc. With, uh, you know, Doc was the trumpet player. Right, of course. Later on, I did an album with Doc, actually, a whole album with Doc. Um, and then every now and then, Sketch would do a separate piano arrangement where he played the piano of the band, and I would arrange that for him, too. So now, he really was great. Now, one thing we love on this show, and we played it a few times, and that's the Nairobi Trio. Oh, oh yeah. Earlier that. in your career, <laughs> I made a note that you did an arrangement of the Nairobi Trio piece from Ernie Kovacs. You know, as a young arranger, if you're dreaming about being a arranger, all you want to do is write something and hear it. So you can put the notes on paper, but until the trumpets play it back and the saxophones, you have no idea how it's going to sound. The guy who was the head of the jazz band when I was a freshman, maybe a sophomore in high school, he, we had a fantastic jazz band. His name was Joel Greenwald, actually. And um, one day, he was, he was a trumpet player that I knew professionally because he had worked the same place you mentioned, the Catskill Mountains. He had been in that same hotel two okay. years before. And um, he said to me, well, if you want to write something for the big band, we'll play it. And so... Uh, so happy oh, yeah. we're picturing the chimps so the oh. chim- what i loved about that it was if you remember people who remember there were three gorillas yeah oh they that's right they were gorillas and and this to this um, you remember I'm sure. yes oh yeah um, oh. and while this music was playing the three gorillas were standing and one gorilla had a big stack of blocks which one by one he would pass to the guy in the middle and he'd pass block after block and the third guy just stood, <laughs> didn't do anything. <laughs> that was the whole bit. And then one had like uh, uh, a drumstick or something 
that he would hit the other one on the head with. That was Ernie Kovacs, right? Yeah, yeah. that was his show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he was he was a comic genius. Hundred years this year uh, of uh, Ernie Co- of uh, Ernie Kovacs' birth. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. What? I would say he would have been a hundred, but that's unlikely. I love your career at that point too, because you're bouncing around and you're doing so many interesting things. You did commercials. You did those park the Parker Brothers commercials. I did a lot of commercials. You, yeah. yeah, and the uh, White Owl cigars. When the values go up, 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 and the prices go down, 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 Robin Hall in season will show you the reason. Low overhead, low overhead. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going to regret this hour. <laughs> well, our, our listeners are going to eat this up. Are, are there any other famous ones like that? You remember the White Owl cigars? You know what? I have to t- confession. Honestly, I, I didn't write that song. I only arranged it. Oh, you arranged it. But I arranged it a hundred different ways. And we had uh, the, dun, 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 the Christmas thing. I don't know. Remember, we I, I did all the commercials. Like, I think Bar- Barry Manilow said in an interview. Oh, he did a lot of jingles. Yeah, because he had a history of writing jingles. He did, yeah. And that he said, now I can't write a song that's not catchy. Oh, well, that's true. Barry's a great writer. Great writer. Another thing you wrote then that Gilbert and I are interested in, too, is, is game show music for Goodson and Todman. And I, I like did. the story in the book about you about what a hard sell. Uh, was it uh, Todman? The other guy, Mark Todd, Goodson. No, Todman. I, Mark I Goodson. Well, Todman used to come in to say hello to me. Yeah. They, they had an office on the Seagram building on the 30th right. floor. They had the whole 30th floor. And there was a big conference room. And I, I got to do that the shows, you know, three or four of the shows. Tell the truth you did and what's my life? match game and what's match my game. life. And um, it would always start off with them, uh, Mark coming out, saying hello to me, and then I'd go into this room to play my little theme. You know, now if you do something, you make a demo, you synthesize it, it sounds good. I, I would just have this little, and it wasn't even 88 keys. It must have been 66 yeah. keys. I don't know why. There was plenty of room for a full piano in that room. Um, and I would sit down, and Mark would assemble all of his staff. <laughs> no uh, pressure. Including J- Gene Rayburn. You remember Gene? Yes, Rayburn? yes, sure. And he'd bring them all. Come on, let's hear the new theme for the show. And i sit down, and in my head, I'd hear trumpets and flutes and piccolos by him. play that through and Mark would go around and he used to stand by the piano and lean over this piano, uh-huh. this little upright piano and his left hand he had a big cigar and he'd smoke and I'd finish this little theme and he'd turn to each one of the people in the room and say, what'd you think? What'd you think? But no one knew what he thought so no one wanted to say what they thought. Oh, one of those. You know, so <laughs> they would say, oh, nice beat, it's nice rhythm, it's catchy, whatever they would say. And finally Mark would turn and to me he said, all right, let's hear it again. I go back. And some along the way, while I was playing, I would see his foot tapping. Uh, and when I see his foot tapping, I knew I had him. You had him. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had him, yeah. He was a hard sell. Yeah. I think Dick DeBartolo was probably in that room. Because <clears throat> oh he was God. he was a writer on Match Game and he used to he used to punch a clock now, in that Seabrams building. And how did foul play come about? 
Well, I did a lot of work for Tom Miller and Eddie Milkus. You know, I did most of the television shows, Happy Days of Vernon and Shirley. Um, and they were good friends and wonderful guys. And um, Foul Play was their second movie. The first one I didn't do, it was um, Henry Mancini actually did that one. Uh, but it, uh, Colin Higgins was the writer. Sure. Harold and Maud. Harold and Maud. Yeah. Right. Um, he didn't direct that first one, uh, Silver Streak. Right, it was Arthur Hiller. Arthur Hiller, right. Yeah. And it was a terrific movie. Yeah. Henry, of course, always did a great job. The next picture, he wrote a trilogy. The second was Foul Play, which is a big hit. And the third with, one with never was Billy made. Billy Barty. Yeah, Billy Barty's Billy in Foul Play. You the bet. third one was the one that never was made. It's called Man Who Lost Tuesday. Never made it. Oh. Uh, and Colin died not too many yeah. years after that. Yeah. You know? I work with him again with 9 to 5. And, and he made uh, Best Little Horace in Texas, too. Yes, yeah. and actually, um, I wrote a song for him for uh, for Burt Reynolds, which didn't get used, by the way. But um, That's in the book. It's in the book. Yeah, yeah. Dolly, Dolly upstaged you. Yeah, well, it's okay. She's, Dolly's a great songwriter. Yeah. And yep. she was in the movie. She felt that was a spot. Um, and no complaints, you know. But um, uh, so when Colin did his first directing, he asked me to do it, the movie, and then I did the remaining pictures with him. And, and now I got to put you on the spot yet again because that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, you're a sport. <laughs> I, Do I have a choice? I, no. <laughs> I want to sing the great song you wrote. Which one is that? Ready to Take a Chance Again. You do? Yes, I <laughs> do. With you playing, oh my God. He's like he went to heaven. You remind. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. He'll tell you when to come in. <laughs> I'm giving you a good introduction. <laughs> you remind me I live in a shell. Save from the past. I'm doing okay. But not very well. Me too. <laughs> not doing very well. No. No jolts, no surprises. No crisis arises. My life goes along as it should. It's all very nice, but not very good. Put my love on the line with you. You're living with nothing to show for it. You get what you get when you go for it. And I'm ready to take a chance again. Ready to take a chance again with you. When she left me in <laughs> all my despair, I just held on, my hopes were hold on, till I found you there. And I'm ready to take a chance again. 
What you get when you go for it And I'm ready to take a chance again Ready to take a chance again With you With you Barry Man will eat your heart out, right? <laughs> you know, we used to sing it on the show a cappella, and I said to Dara, now we'll never get Charles Barry. <laughs> and now I'm going to say, now we'll never get Barry. <laughs> Barry's Because Charles is here. Barry's a good sport. Oh, so, so you wrote that song. I did. With, with, Norman, with Norman. Norman. Gimbel, yeah. Great Norman. That Gimbel. is a terrific song. Thank you. And that's one of those songs, like a lot of songs that Barry Manilow made famous with hits. It's one of those songs where people don't want to say how much they like the song. Yeah, there no, there are these songs that you feel <laughs> like, oh, I want to pick something really, uh, you know, something by Captain Beefheart. <laughs> you know, there's an episode my grandson watches. Uh, I think it's it's a cartoon show at night. Uh, it's kind of a hip cartoon show, The Americans or something. I don't know what. That, that they did a whole episode on these four or five guys that sit around and they said, uh, yeah, I don't want to sing any Barry Who, Which songs you and Which singers? And they said, Barry Manley, yeah, I don't care for his songs that much. Oh, oh, it's Family Guy. Family Guy. Guy. Yes. Family Guy. Yes. And, uh, well, how about Mandy? Yeah, that one's not too bad. Yeah, it's just the other songs. How about... Um, Ready to take a set? Oh, I like... And they all started singing. Of Ready course. Sing, That's because Seth's a Barry Manilow fan, <laughs> and, the guy that runs that show. And, that so? yeah, he's yeah, got to be. Yeah. Oh, and then... In, then Barry Manilow, I have to say, is one of the nicest men. One of the greatest. If you ever saw his show, you never forget I've it. seen his show. Yeah. I saw him outdoors, and, Forest Hills. I saw his show, too. I, I'm a definite Barry Manilow fan. We're fans. And, and, and Family Guy, then they get like little girls, and they say, oh, we have to see him. And then Barry Manilow's there singing to Quagmire. Yeah. And he says, uh, you came and you gave without taking, he sings. And Quagmire goes, I would never take from you, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I think when, when, when you, you talk to Seth next again, ask him if he's a Barry Manilow oh, I'm fan. Because sure I'm, I'm sure he is because it's turned up a lot. I saw him. He would take out. He, he never took himself seriously in those live shows. He would take out the accordion and play Lady of Spain. Yeah, yeah, and then he, he, he would finish that. and say, I'd like to see Billy Joel do that. But see, that's what I was talking about. He's one of those guys. People are embarrassed to say they like his songs. But everybody loves it. Not the songs. people who come to see his shows. Oh, my God. Yeah. Not the people who count. And, and not the yeah. people who buy records. Yeah. Barry, he's one of the greatest entertainers, yeah. one of the most popular, successful singers ever. Yeah, I loved his show. Is that a, Was that a fun film to score? Because it's a comedy, but it's also a Hitchcock homage. You know what? I, and I've play. done a few of those kind of things. I've done a number of movies that are they're dramatic they're in, and they're sometimes uh, suspenseful. And yet comedy at the same time. Well, like, well, like 9 to 5 was a little like that. Sure. Yeah. I did a picture called Trench Coat, too. Oh, I know that picture. Um, Robert Hayes? Yeah, Robert yeah. Hayes. Yeah. But anyway, yes. And uh, so I, I remember talking with Colin Higgins before the picture was shot. 
And um, the end of the movie was Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase making his first movie. Sure. Trying to get to stop the Pope from being killed. It was going to, there was a... a Just sort of an homage of uh, the man who knew too much. It was. Yeah. It was homage, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Colin, Colin was very quick to say that. Um, he was a real fan of Hitchcock. And um, so it's going to start with um, the beginning of the Mikado. And then we're going to see... <clears throat> We're going to see the uh, Goldie and Chevy trying to get to the opera house and stop this murder from getting about to happen. But they kept getting stopped by traffic and a, a singing cowboy star and mm-hmm. all kinds of fun stuff, you know, and, um, and two Japanese people in a, in a taxi uh, singing um, Chop Chop something. Uh, uh, what was the, uh, it was a famous television show, I don't remember. Kojak, Kojak, Kojak yeah. Chop oh, they Chop. they kept that? right. Right. Um, anyways, and we kept, uh, so I do a piece of music, and then we cut to the opera house. And every time we have to have the opera house more uh, in progress. So we, we listed five or six or seven pieces that the opera would have to sing. And I went to New York and I recorded the New York City Opera Company um, doing those numbers. And then, wow. and, and then I, when the picture was finished, I wrote the music that led into each operatic moment so that in the end, the, the design was... At the end of this long 10-minute scene, it would play like one piece of music, mine and then Arthur Sullivan, then mine and Sullivan, you know? So that was pretty challenging. Yeah, I can imagine. It's a good film. Oh, it's a great it's film. It's a good film. And now I'm going to go back and watch it again and just listen With to that, the music. Yeah, yeah I ab- did have a lot of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. He, he was another one of our former guests. Who's that? Chevy Oh, Chevy. Chase. We had Chevy. Oh, Chevy. In fact, funny. he sang Ready to Take a Chance Again to Chevy. Chevy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I, work, I work with him on the European vacation. Sure. Sure. Was that Amy Heckerling? Amy. I think it was. We had Amy, Amy here, too. Yes. We're, we're following your career, Charles. What took you so long to get me? We're stalking you. <laughs> Since you're talking about, this is a fun story, too. Since you're talking about how you were pitching uh, in the room to Mark Goodson, uh, the story of you pitching the Love Boat theme to Aaron yeah. Spelling. Yeah, that was uh, that was unique. Uh, yeah. That was unique. <laughs> I've told that story many times. It's fun. I mean, along the way, when I played song, new songs for people, sometimes they had some way to hear it in the room, a cassette machine. Sometimes they had nothing. I had sometimes four or five producers going into my little car, listening to something in my car. And uh, I played um, I played themes over the phone for people. You yeah, know? that's interesting, too. But um, but that particular one, uh, Love Boat, um, there was a movie called Love Boat. It was a two-hour movie, and I did a few of them. And then they decided to make it as a series, and I said, it would be great, Aaron, if we got a song. Uh, he said, what would you, who would you guys? I said, Paul Williams, we just worked together. He's fantastic. So he said, great. So we wrote a song, and I made a demo, a proper demo, with singers and band, and I brought it into, this, into Aaron's office for him to hear the demo. And, um, and I walked in, he, he kind of rubbed his two hands together, like, and saying gleefully, oh boy, what'd you bring me? Because I'd worked with him before. Yeah, I said I think we have a, a good song, Aaron. So, do you have a tape machine I could play the demo? And he looked around the room and he said, "No, we don't have a tape machine here." I said, uh, oh, "Okay, <laughs> no. they have a tape machine." I said, <laughs> "No, it was your producer's office." <laughs> I said, "No problem." Uh, cassette machine. I brought a. Ca- I came prepared. I said, "A cassette machine would be fine." <clears throat> Got on the horn with the secretary. And he said, could you bring in a cassette machine? She said, I'll have to find one. And she came back a few minutes later and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Spelling, there's no cassette machine. 
So I said, look, Aaron, we're, we're on the lot of 20th Century Fox. There's pianos all over. I used to go to Mel Brooks' office sometimes to play songs for Goldie Horn for that movie that I did with the uh, Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox. Fox yeah. Good movie. And um, I wrote with Sammy Kahn. Yeah. Said, yeah. And uh, I said, so there's pianos all over. So he said, all right, let me check with my secretary. And she came back a few minutes later and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Spelling, there's no pianos available in the lot. <laughs> So I look at him and I kind of shrug my shoulder. Where do we go now? And he looked at me and I said, all right, Aaron, here goes. Love. Exciting and new. Come aboard. We all welcome you, the love boat. And that's how I sang the song. <laughs> you just wow. it to him right Acapella, snapping, snapping my fingers. And you, you sold it with no music. And you know what he said? Why? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he owed you that at that point. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that was a unique story. That never happened. <laughs> so talk about working with Paul. Paul's been on this show. We all adore him. We were talking about him outside. You did one on one first, the Robbie Benson. We movie. did a bunch of songs for one on one. Paul's wonderful. I, I love Paul. He's a, yeah. a gent. I love him as, as, as a creative. I, t I told you, I think before I was a fan of his before we Us ever too. got to yeah. work together. Um, we're good friends, and uh, I love him, and uh, we have fun working together. And actually, I'll just cut to tomorrow. Tomorrow, not literally, but we have written a new song together for a movie coming out. It'll be out in October. It's an HBO picture. Exciting. But it'll be in theaters first. And uh, it's a picture, it's a documentary picture called The Bronx, USA. And we wrote a song called The Bronx. And uh, Robert, uh, Robert Klein sang it. Oh, great. He sang it. He's in the picture. Interviews a lot of people from the Bronx, including me, um, including Colin Powell, by the way, from the Bronx yes. and, and other people. And then uh, we needed, uh, Paul wrote a rap lyric that I asked him to do, and um, it was great. And we got uh, uh, Donald Weber Jr., who, was, who right now is playing Burr in Hamilton. But he actually, he was Hamilton on Broadway here for a while. And then I said, I also need a background group like the, uh, like the, four, like the you know, like the um, Four Seasons Frankie Valley's group. And anyway, we ended up with the cast of... Uh, of um, Hamilton. No. Oh. <laughs> Jersey so Boys. Jersey Boys. I said I need a group like the Jersey right. Boys. Right, right. I was still on Hamilton. Yeah. Um, so we got the four guys from Jersey Boys. So they sang. So we, the, the, that's this record that we have. So then they went out to the streets of uh, New York on the east side, the Bronx, and they shot all the people and the singers and everything on the streets of the Bronx. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So that's the opening of the movie. And the end of the movie, the song we wrote, The Bronx, we had everyone, the whole cast on stage with the band, with myself at the piano, playing this as an end title. So Paul and I are very excited Great about that, that you guys yeah. are working together. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Yeah. When, when he was on the show, <clears throat> I was singing his songs to him in his voice. In his voice? Yes. Yeah. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? It's <laughs> <laughs> doing a Paul impression yeah. to Paul. <laughs> I love those songs. I mean, uh, uh, oh, not only we've only just song. begun, but even some of, the, some of the lesser known ones like Won't Last a Day Without You. And, I don't and, know how uh, lesser known that well, is. That's a big, I mean, big hit song. Yeah, but... And, oh, we, and we had a hit together though called My Fair Share. That yes, was Seals and Crofts. Seals and Crofts. The one I always yeah. liked of his, and I sang it to him there, was Nice to Be nice Around. Nice to Be Around from Cinderella Liberty. Yeah. That was a beautiful song. That was John Williams music. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful yeah. song. But we started to work together. We've been friends ever since. And uh, we, um, 
He's great. He's a him. giant. Yeah. He really yeah. is. Now, not only that, but you know, he's been the president of ESCAP. Yep. Yeah, and he does a lot friend. for songwriters. He's, we should point that out. very nice. He's yeah. done a lot for songwriters for music. Yeah. Absolutely. He came to the screening of my documentary, and afterwards, he <laughs> threw his arms around me and said, I love you even more now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he took us to a nice lunch. Yes. You, know, you, yeah, me, you me, and Dara. Terrific guy. Let's talk about Norman, your collaborations with, with Norman uh, Gimbel and, and, and these three wonderful songs that charted. Uh, the Croce song, I Got a Name. And also Killing Me Softly, which we have to talk about. Jim Croce's song, um, we did a picture called The Last American Hero with Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I know the picture. <clears throat> and we wrote the song. And uh, we were kind of late in getting the song going with the, with the film. And we, uh, so over the phone, we called Jim Croce, which is kind of unusual. He usually send a demo. We called him and he heard the song and, over the phone and said he would sing it. So I got his key. I, didn't, I still hadn't met him. I got his key by listening to his record. He had a he had a new song coming up on the show. It's called Operator. Sure, and he was a new, really not that well known singer yet. You know, before um, any of his hits, Operator just coming up on the charts. And we we thought his voice not only matched our song but matched the character Jeff Bridges' character in the film. So I got his key by just listening to some of his records. I made a big record, uh, orchestral background strings and everything at Twenty Century Fox Soundstage in Hollywood. And I brought it with me to work with Jim. And when I got to meet him for the first time in, in his producer's office, he said, uh, let me hear that song, right? I only heard it on the phone. I, kn- I knew I'd have to sing it. So I played the song and I sang it for him. And he was touched and he said he knew he'd have to do the song because he knew it reminded him of his father who died before fulfilling his own dreams. Uh, and then he said, can I play a song for you? I said, sure. So he played uh, a new song he had just written called uh, I Have to Say I Love You in a Song. Love that one. So that's, the, I always look back on that relationship, two songwriters. Uh, yeah, it's nice. song for each other. Many years later, I'll tell you another story. Uh, many years later, um, um, Lena Horn was mm-hmm. doing her Broadway show, Lena Horn Broadway. And Alan Bergman one day said to me, a great songwriter and a friend, he said, if you want to hear a great version of that song, I got a name. He says, go to New York and see Lena. Well, I couldn't do that, but then she came out to California. I saw her there. And she came out and she started singing um, her, you know, uh, Stormy Weather, her mm-hmm, sure. signature number. And she sang about a minute of that. And then she went right into I Got a Name. And she did her own interpretation, her own style, and it was fantastic. And she started talking about her father. In the song, and, and, and about how it just got it all revved up, and the audience reacted to her by cheering her. They got up and cheering in the middle of the second, my, myself included. So I didn't know Lena Horn then, so I didn't go backstage and plan to do that. But the next day, I sent her a bouquet of flowers, and I said, from a grateful composer. Oh, nice. And she sent me back a letter, which I can pretty well quote, because I have it framed. <laughs> it's in the book. It's yeah. in the book, yeah. yeah. Actually, I think it's in the book. And it basically says to uh, the composer of my favorite song, thank you for writing my favorite song. You don't know how much meaning it has for me because every time I sing it, I think of my father. Isn't that something? So that's the interest. And actually... Uh, people connected I, to it that way. It's interesting, yes. And a lot of people did, yeah. Connected through... through and, uh, and I've seen it many times since. Croce was a big talent and, of course, 
left us he was early. Not, yeah, he died way, way, way too young. He was such a. I love those songs, uh, Rapid Roy, the Stock. We, we talk about how people don't write story songs anymore. He wrote story. He wrote songs. a lot of story songs. Rapid Roy, that stock car boy. <coughs> of course, you don't mess around with Jim. Bad, bad Leroy Brown. Yeah, and the love Roy. songs that he wrote. Time in a Battle doesn't great, get any more beautiful. Great. I have to say I love you in a song. It's yeah. beautiful. And and Frank and I were talking about how Roberta Flack came to sing that. She was um, flying from Los Angeles to, Cal- to New York. And, uh, you know, in those days, 1972, 73, people didn't carry Walkman, didn't have their own music CDs and MP3s that we have now. So we had this record that was programmed on American Airlines. And... Um, Roberta was was uh, with that song, and she was flying from Los Angeles. She had just done a concert with Quincy Jones. She was flying home, and she heard that song, and she she's a real musician, Roberta. You know, she took a pencil of paper and, and started to write notes and and the lyrics. And she got to New York. She said she listened to it for a few times. A few times, she called Quincy Jones and said, "Quincy, how do I meet Charles Fox?" So Quincy called me. Uh, no, she called me actually, uh, and I was. Um, Quincy gave him numbers of mine where to reach me. And one day I was walking through the Paramount Music Library and someone handed me a telephone and said, here, this is for you. And I can still remember it in my ear because Roberta Slack said, oh, I didn't. she had just won the Grammy Award for yeah. Best Record, Best Song. Oh, I, best first record. time ever I first saw time your ever. face. And she said, hi, this is Roberta Slack. And we haven't met, but I'm going to sing your songs. And I... How to take this phone away from me or look at the phone. Am I really hearing this right? You know? <laughs> anyway, so we met in Quincy Jones' office when she came out to California. And that was the start of it. Yeah. And it's it's fun. They used, the, they used the song in uh, About a Boy. And and it, it was funny. The way they used it gets back to what we were talking about before. Like the whole thing is, no, he can't sing that. It'll be embarrassing. Mm, yeah. They'll beat him up. They'll laugh at him. That's, and then when he's singing it, it looks like, oh, this is pathetic. And then when you Grant joins him and does the backup, you go, wow, this is really nice. You know, uh, it was it was a nice, it was a fun performance of that. We, we've had probably about two thousand people record this. How song. about that? Yeah. I was reading an interview with the director of that movie, and he said he chose the song because they needed a song that was so nakedly vulnerable or, 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 or so emotionally open that, that, that kids could make fun of him for singing it. But it also had to be a song that when you really listened to it, was cool. It had to... So speaking about that, Quentin Tarantino made a movie that he used, I got a name in a couple of years ago. I can't think of the name. Was it was a cowboy picture? And uh, uh, was it was it Django Unchained? Django Unchained, yeah. and he does a whole moment, like a two minute, where Django meets the other guy. I forget the situation, and the two go riding off together to be partners. And he scored the whole scene with Jim Croce singing that song. Um, and I didn't know it. No one called me to tell me. They that. don't call you. I was going to ask you. They don't call you to get the the, the permission sometimes. blessing. Well, they do with some songs. Kill okay. me softly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I saw Quentin Tarantino at the at the, at the Oscars that year. And I went over to say hello and uh, to introduce myself because I never met him. And I thanked him for doing it. I said, I love the way he used my song. He said, oh, that's your song. He said, you know, I, I found that song listening uh, on YouTube with you singing. Oh, that's right. That clip's so, online. So I said, well, you made a smart move by asking Jim, getting Jim Croce. <laughs> not me, you know? But here's the nice thing. I said, you know what? I was going to send you a note to tell you how much I liked you using my song in that picture. He said... If you send me the note still, I'll keep it. 
How about that? That's something so I wrote him a little letter, yeah. How about that? Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. I got a quick question about, and we jump all over the place, but uh, the Charles Fox Singers, since we were talking about Love American Style, it started out with the Cow Sills. Started off with the Cow Sills. They'd sang um, uh, Love American Style for me. Right. The second year, Paramount asked me to replace them because of business arrangement, whatever that was. Um, those days, there was the Henry Mancini singer. Right. So you, you know? decided there were the. So someone <laughs> said, well, what have you decided? Someone said, what should we call the group? Uh, you know. <laughs> You can call him tomorrow. I don't know. Right. So uh, I said, we need a name. He said, well, you had the councils. Well, give it a name. Give it your name. So I said, okay, Charles Fox Singers. What the- but the truth is, there was no Charles Fox right. <laughs> were, they, were, were they the Ron Hicklin singers? Well, Ron Hicklin was uh, in his group, his group of okay. guys. They did most of my shows. I did a little digging. And they, yeah, and uh, uh, never take anything away from anyone, you know. Uh, Ron is great. His singles were great. They did most of my shows, uh, Wonder Woman, all those things. Sure. Like Laverne and Shirley. Um, no, Laverne and Shirley, they didn't do that. was uh, Cindy Greco. Cindy Greco. See, I, I promise I won't sing these songs. It's but too if we late for hear... that promise. We, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> way, promise we're way beyond <laughs> that. <now. laughs> if we could hear a snippet of, of some of these great, like love American style. Love, 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 love American style. Truer than the red, white, and blue. Love American style. That's me and you. And then Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. Saturday, what a day. Rocking all week with you and. Give us any chance, we'll take it. Read us any rule, we'll break it. We're gonna make our dreams come true. Wonder Woman! Wonder Woman! The love boat. Anyway. Oh, my God! I love the way they just... Go right, flow right into well, each other. Well, I just other. did that. Yeah. It doesn't usually, you it's, know. It's, and actually, oh I, I, I didn't sing the love, but I just said the word. But anyway. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. You know, I got a question here. Charles, this is, I, I asked a couple of musicians. I said, friends of mine, I said, do you have <clears throat> questions for Charles Fox? And my friend Shark, who's a musician in Los Angeles, said, ask him, please ask him if he ever ro- was rushed and wrote something five minutes before he had to play it. For the producer or a creator of a show, most of them were that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Just come um, up right on the spot. Un- you know, under pressure. honestly, um, Hollywood works that way. You know, you don't you don't get a whole lot of extra time to do things. Um, not quite, not quite that. But but the truth is, you always you always get up and have to do the work and show it off and um, present it in a nice light and all that. And to tell you the truth, with all my movies, I always like to play the whole score for people at the piano. Uh, and I director comes to my house, and I played the entire. I did a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, the only movie I ever directed. Oh, Christmas in Connecticut, right? Connecticut. Yeah. And when I went to work with him, I when I met him the first time, I went to his office, and he said, "You know, I I'm not going to imitate his voice. You all know how he sounds." He said, "You know, I never work with music. I don't know how to work with music." I said, "That's great." I said, let's talk about the picture. Let me worry about the notes. So that 
made it easier for him. Then he came to my house, and I played the score for him at the piano, and, and he got it, and then he became real astute. He was really smart in terms of hearing things and, and knowing where music, where it would help or it wouldn't. And, uh, um, but, I mean, it's always, so there's always a challenge, but it's simply what I do. I've heard you say one of the thrills of your career is sitting in the theater for the first time yes. and hearing the score or the music come up full and watching everything. Well, not even full. You know, I, I went to the dubbing sessions of every one of my movies because it wasn't just enough to write the music. I had to get it into the picture at the right level. Could have been loud, could have been as soft as anything. You know, it, it was a moment. It's a matter of enhancing the moment of the undercut, undercut of the story to uh, uh, what you're trying to bring out, you know, the emotional qualities, the dramatic qualities, even. Um, and I always felt that if uh, and directors expected me to do that, so I used to go and sit right next to the music mixer on the dubbing stage, and uh, very often I'd <laughs> move the dials myself, you know, the faders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, when it's finally finished, by the way, I didn't always get my way. Sometimes the director wanted a lot of sound effects that would wipe out the music, but I mean, it's a collaborative business, and and the director has the final say. It's just that simple. So you work with the director, of course. And when I sit in the theater, I hear everything's just to the right level, whether it had to be full screen or this part, a little oboe behind a delicate moment. Uh, yes, it's very satisfying for me. And I'm going to ask you, who are your favorite? We talked about Neil Hefty, Jerry, Go- oh, uh, uh, Henry Mancini. You were friends with the great Jerry Goldsmith. Who were your favorite composers? Well, Jerry was certainly one of my, my, one of my favorites, a fantastic composer and a good friend of mine. And um, We love those scores. Omen. Jerry was out of the apes. So I will tell you that when Jerry was, um, yeah, was sick near the end when he had uh, when he was still functioning, but it was he was ill, and uh, he had two concerts. I conducted for him from time to time, mm-hmm. not on his recording sessions, but uh, in concerts. He asked me to do a concert for him. At one time, I was busy finishing uh, one of my ballets, my Zorro ballet, and, and he called me and he said he had two concerts coming up in. Uh, one in England and one in Japan. He loved working at the, Los, uh, L, uh, the uh, London Symphony, LSO. Uh, and he said he didn't think he could do both that and J- Japanese concerts. Would I do the Japanese concert for him? So I couldn't say no to Jerry, so I said, of course I would. So in the daytime, I was writing my music, orchestrating my music at that point. In the evening, I was studying his scores. So when I stand in front of a 100-piece orchestra, about that? I know what the music is. So we actually did the first, um, the first time ever episode, uh, a suite of The Omen. I had a hundred voice chorus. Wow. I had, wow. Uh, you know, and, uh, and it was the first time it was ever put together, and I conducted it in Japan with the Kanagawa Philharmonic, you know, in Tokyo and in, uh, in the Yokohama. So, so he would certainly be on the short list he, of your favorite he, film composers. Personally, I think he's one of the greatest composers ever. And uh, I always say about Jerry, he was, uh, he was a great film composer, but more than great, he was a great American composer who, who devoted his life to film. Um, John Williams, a fantastic composer, sure. you know. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, my, Michael Cicchino, a young composer. He's been on this show. Has he? Yes, he has. Uh, yeah, he's a nice, he's, he's a good friend too. Yes, he's. And a charming guy, and he's, uh, there's a lot of talent. I told him you were coming on. Did you? Yes, I, I did. Uh, One thing I always think about whenever there's a composer is it's the sign of a bad composer and a bad director, for that matter, when music comes on and I find myself going, okay, I'm supposed to be sad now. I'm supposed to be invigorated. Do you find yourself 
going, okay, I got to work against certain, you find. Sometimes you do. Sometimes yeah. you play against what's on the scene. Sure, there can be a happy scene between two people talking, but really what she's thinking about is something else. Uh, a little bit of under underneath the skin, you know, she's thinking about a moment they had. So you have those, you know, that control as a composer. You certainly want to play a design, you have a design for the, how you're going to treat the music and you usually go through it with the director and it's a very co collaborative thing. But there are certainly times that you want to play against the film. If it's a happy moment, you may play sad. If it's a sad moment, you play, may play it up. It's all a matter of what you're trying to let the audience understand the feel at that moment is part of the grand design of the film. And um, I mean, I did a film, it was a television film once with a great director, Lamont Johnson. And um, it was about a woman who had uh, 200 names, 200 alter egos. And she had suffered horribly as a child and didn't know that she was, it was called 100, 200 Voices or something like that. Thousand Voices, something. It's a true story. And uh, the director said to me, now, you know, I want to be um, very simple because this woman has these noises in her head. And um, so just not much music and very sparse, very simple. And I went ahead and I wrote the most busy score I've ever written in my whole life. And he came over to my house, and I think I did most of it in the synthesizer in my studio. And he came to my house, and I said, Lamont, I wrote some of the busiest music I ever wrote. I said, but what I played, I played what is in her head. So I wasn't playing what the audience reaction was. I played what this woman was hearing in her head. Interesting. And uh, and he loved it. So it, uh, you, you have to take a chance. Of and course. Do, do what you think is right, you know. I also found it interesting that you don't like themes, TV theme songs that explain the show. <laughs> you you prefer something that sets a tone, right, or creates a context, right? So I did a show called The Paper Chase, sure, with John House, yeah. And um, when I went to do the show with him, John Houseman said, "So I'm going to start the show with narration." It was like the movie The Paper Chase. I'm going to start with narration where I talk about the kids coming to school and they're going to learn this, they're going to learn that, and they come from different countries, different parts of the United States, and I'm going to make a lawyer out of you. They said, what do you think about putting music behind that? I said, for the main title, you absolutely should have music behind it. He said, okay. I said, as a matter of fact, I have an idea. Since it's the same narration over and over, I don't want to tell them it's boring, but since it's the same narration over and over, it's the same story every week. I said, why don't we start with the narration and then we'll go into a song explaining just those feelings about with the feelings of doing something new in your life, something frightening, something a little ex exhilarating, uh, what it's like to be a first-year law student. And then we'll cut, we'll see the kids get on buses and trains coming to Harvard and when they go into the huge auditorium where you're speaking, we'll cut back to you and your narration. And he waited a beat and he said, you want to cut out my narration? I said, well... You know, uh, the song would, would really work better. <laughs> anyway, we ended up with a song as I wrote it. And I actually, of, of all my shows, it was the only one that was got a lot of awards and nominations, uh -huh. myself included. But it lasted one year. It didn't. didn't. Yeah. But then it went to syndication, and Good he show. took over, and he went back to his narration. Oh, he, he, he changed it in syndication. Yeah. I was thinking, and for one of our short episodes, we should do... All the shows that hit had theme songs <coughs> telling the story. All the Sherwood Schwartz yeah. so, uh, theme, and, and, theme songs. Yeah, I, I, didn't <laughs> want to, I didn't want to say that, but that's true. Yeah, yeah they Every all explain Miller the show. Every Miller Boyette was also Or like a handful that. of them. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah. I work with Tom Bill and Tom. And, and <laughs> those guys are great. I did a song, a uh, show with them. They pretend to be the Hogan family. Yeah, sure. Um, and I wrote a song that Roberta Flack sang for me. Right. Yeah. That's a good one. I'll tell you a song I love is the one from the other side of the mountain. Richard, Richard's Window. Richard's Window. Beautiful. Thank you. We were nominated for this. Beautiful song. piece of music. Now. Yeah. Um, and a good film. It was a very good film. Well, again, Larry Pierce yeah, directed it, and my good friend Ed Friedman was, was the producer. That People was, should yeah. see it. So I'll tell you a couple of things, if I may, if you Please want to know do. about yes. that. Sure. All right. Yes. Yes. Um, so I did one of the most, um, yeah, I, I do a lot of varied things, uh, as you know. Um, one of the things I did is very exciting to me recently. I started off my career in Latin music. You may know that. I played. You were Carlos Zorro. I would call it Carlos Zorro. <laughs> I want to, really, honestly, I want to get accepted by the Latin. We got a kick people, out of that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I found out they thought I was okay anyway. Didn't have to take the Spanish name, but I did go by that for a while. I, but I played with Tito Puente. I yes. played with Ray Barreto and people like that. So last year, I decided after fifty years of not playing Latin music, I want to make another Latin record. Fantastic. So um, I was going to record some of the great musicians in New York and L.A. and maybe Puerto Rico and Cuba. And a friend of mine who's uh, Edesio Alejandro, is a great Cuban composer, when I told him about that, he mentioned it to the Minister of Culture of Cuba. And I was invited, the Cuban Minister of Culture invited me to come over to, to Havana and do concerts. So last summer, I did two concerts at the Opera House uh, with all the fantastic Cuban musicians. Uh, Omar Portanto, you know, from the Buena Vista Social Club. Yeah, I love me. that movie. She sang with me in my concert. Um, and we... Um, we had two thousand people each night, and I was back in my, in my, how nice, you know, my uh, happy place, just playing Latin music, all my songs, and uh, and actually, it's being made into a film. It's being cut into a motion picture, a documentary film. My this trip to uh, Cuba wow. playing, you know. you got a lot going on. It's, it's something I'm really happy about and proud about. You know. What else do you you want to plug the fulfillment fund and songs of our lives? You still involved with that? Fulfillment fund is a fantastic organization, mostly in California. Um, a good friend of mine, Gary Gitnick, started about 33, 34 years ago. And he, um, it's an organization that helps about 2,500 young students a year from the most disadvantaged parts of uh, Los Angeles and some other places too. Um, it gives them an opportunity to, to help them through high school into colleges with, with uh, all kinds of support, scholarships. Yeah, and yeah. So about 10 years ago, Gary asked me if... Um, Oh, I know what. My wife, Joan, became a co-president of the Friends of the Film at Front, of auxiliary group, ancillary group. And she asked me if I would do a concert in someone's house one night, just play some of my songs, and maybe they'd raise some money. So we, we did. We raised quite a bit of money. We raised $100,000, something like that, in someone's house, people promising money. And uh, Gary Gitnick was, uh, was not a musician, but he didn't waste a beat and say, what can we do next year? So I started doing concerts of friends who were songwriters. It's an impressive list. We had everyone. I'm telling you. Yeah, what I wouldn't have given to see some of those concerts. Year, I'll, I'll tell you, the, here's what we had the very first year. First of all, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. Oh. We had uh, um, Lieber and Stoller. Oh, oh uh, great. man. Melissa Manchester, Bill Withers, uh, Steve Terrell singing. Sedaka did it, didn't he? Hal David singing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and Alan, Alan Bergman. This is all only the first concert. Amazing. So we've done 10 years where I had back rack and uh, I'll speak. I saw the list today. Staggering. Yeah, yeah we, did, we did. We And of course, we raised a lot of money for this group. 
So Charles Fox is the what's the give us the website too so people can go there and look at your stuff. Well, it's Charles Fox Music. CharlesFoxMusic.com. Yeah. You've got this HBO thing happening. You won't you won't see yet, but a show that I've uh, just completed. We're working on now with uh, Norman Steinberg, your friend. We love Norman. Yeah, we I do too. We we did it. We did a musical based on a, an 18th century place called School for Scandal. And um, we're just now taking meetings. We've completed it. And with Arthur Hamilton, who's my collaborator, who wrote Cry Me a River. And um, we're here to begin get, getting to theaters. We hope to move it to Broadway. That's great. Yeah. You're busy. I'm busy, yeah. And we want to thank, I just want to thank two people too, Krista Rose, who helped with the research, and our friend uh, Jared O'Connell, who set up this wonderful keyboard. Well, thank you. It was fun to play, and I see all your notes. It's very impressive. <laughs> this is your whole career in about 12 cards. <laughs> Charles, we and uh, believe me, I'll never forget your singing my songs. That was uh, <laughs> and, that touches and, me. And you're not off the hook yet. Uh, not yet, oh. Because this is uh, the end of the show. Yeah. Why don't we let Charles do one by himself? Oh. <laughs> okay. Song? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, surprise us. What a special treat this episode was. This was amazing. This may be my new favorite episode out of 250, Charles. <laughs> this was well, amazing. Aaron, look at the, look at the, you look at your, oh, your I love it. Your grateful audience here. Well, first of all, thank you guys for really you, you know you know too much about me. It's just that simple. Well, listen, but I appreciate it, and you guys are great. I had a good time myself. We, there's plenty we didn't even get to. We didn't get to Marcel Marceau and Fred Astaire. You and, have to okay. come back. You'll have to come back. We'll and, come back. And invite me back us. again. I'll come back. Come back with Norman. And and I gotta Steinberg. put you on the spot again. Yeah. At the end of Zach. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> they had a song ready to get what you got. If you know. Don't ask me to play that. I can't remember that for life. Okay, yeah. here, here. <laughs> just, you can fake it. <clears throat> I know it's such a bum, 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 bum. Someone's playing tricks on me. Where is that quiet kid I used to be? Not long ago. You could cut this, one Gilbert. I used to know. <laughs> You are amazing. Isn't he something you. else? I don't, I don't remember that. I honestly don't remember that. You know, it's funny. One night we were in the theater years ago, and there was an Albert Brooks movie. 
I think it was Albert Brooks, and he was with the girl, and they and they went back to her house, or she went back to his house, and and they and they find that they're both into theme songs, and he said, "Really, I love theme songs," and and he said, "What's your favorite?" And he he starts to play the Bugaloos. It was a Sid Marty Croft show. Of course, I forgot that I wrote that. Honestly, <laughs> oh I wow! Forgot. And I turned to my wife, and they're singing the Bugaloos on the air and everywhere. And I turned to my wife and I said, "I think I wrote that." That's great. And then on the screen credit, I saw. I knew my new idea. Oh my god! You know, I've written a lot of stuff. Usually, don't forget it. But uh, we got somebody else. We got to get on the oh, show. So we're gonna, we're I, gonna. Oh, oh yeah. We're gonna but bid Charles a I fond go, farewell. Here I am. Take a look at me. I'm high as a kite and I'm twice as free like a dream that was meant to be. This time I'm fine and I'm ready to get what you got if you're ready or not. Ready to get what you got if you're ready or not. You're gonna you're gonna come back. You're gonna memorize that <laughs> I'm gonna have song. We have to go back and learn that and song you're again. You're gonna yeah. learn that song. We have to learn that. Oh, Charles, so thanks for reviving it anyway. <laughs> Gilbert, you got to go straight to the Philippines with that. Yes, yeah. yes. Guys, well, I, had a, I had a lot of fun. Really. Thank you, thanks Charles. This is a, a real I, treat for us. Th- this has been terrific, terrific. And and okay, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And a guy who composed uh, pretty much everything. Pretty much. <laughs> Charlie Fox. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank a great you, pleasure. Charles. Yeah. Thanks Thank for inviting me. Invite me back again. I had a great time. Oh, absolutely. We will. <laughs> we will. You bet. And I carry it with me like my daddy did. But I'm living the dream that he kept here. Rolling me down the highway. Rolling me down the highway. The light won't pass me by Like a north wind whistling down the sky I've got a song I've got a song Like a whirlpool and the babies cry I've got a song I've got a song Gets me nowhere, I go there proud. Moving me down the highway, rolling me down the highway. Moving ahead so life won't pass me by. Me 
the pine Pulling me down the highway Pulling me down the highway Moving the hills till I won't pass me by Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 